welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. In Italy, the major Italian wine fair cancelled again. Updates on EU-US tariffs, postponement for four months, but drinks industry is still hurting. UK pubs close, but craft breweries growing. AB InBev in Patagonia settle lawsuit over branding. And as ever, our wine of the week. Well, as ever, we start with our week in wine. I'm just fresh from tasting some Mexican wines, which was a lot of fun. Aligote, Chenin Blanc, Grignolino, all sorts of crazy stuff. And that's what we love about the world of wine. Always something interesting and different to try. And it's a lot of fun trying those. So how did it come about that you had a tasting of Mexican wines? I have tried this producer before. They're called Trace Som. They're actually three... Um, Sons based in California, and they went on a trip to Mexico just to try wine, and they discovered this vineyard which has like a hundred different varieties planted in it, and they just jokingly said to the proprietor, "Can we make some wine?" And then, and he said, "Yes." And so it's just a very small side project. They just made a rosé, and then they made the aligote. Now they have seven different wines, and over the course of the last three years, they've kind of changed their direction and who's involved. And um, I met. Um, the female representative of Tresan, who's called Taylor, and she's kind of taken a more active role in the winemaking as the other two have kind of gone on their own projects. So it's ever-evolving. But um, they're really passionate about Mexico and what, what it can do and where they can go with it. Well, so that's really interesting because usually you have, you know, the producers on the ground kind of making wine. And even if it doesn't have a great global exposure, you know, you really have that rich history. And before the outsiders come in, um, as I think this this Trace Somme brand is, sounds like it's happened fairly quickly for Mexico because really, I mean, winemaking, at least for me, hasn't it hasn't been on my radar um, until recent years. Well, Taylor said that I didn't realize this, that ex- that imports were banned into Mexico up until the 1980s. So Mexicans could only drink local wine, which wasn't necessarily very good. And there was no exposure to foreign wine. And then when the um, import ban was lifted, all of a sudden they're like, oh, our wine's actually quite rubbish compared to the wines of the rest of the world, which is quite ironic because Mexican wine was banned by the Spanish back in the colonial days, and they weren't allowed to make Mexican wine. So these bans have not helped the development of Mexican wine over the last 500 years. But Katie, you've been out and about. That's right. I went on a little road trip down to Big Sur, which is um, in typical Californian fashion, um, mix of Spanish and English words. So Big Sur, Big South should be Sur Grande. Anyhow, it's a river um, south of Monterey, uh, south of Salinas. If you don't know Salinas, I don't blame you. Um, John Steinbeck. That's true. Their claim to fame. Lots of crops and ocean views. But anyway, down in Big Sur, uh, it is quite beautiful, lots of great hikes, and that's what I was there for primarily. However, wine did integrate itself into the weekend, and it came became some sort of a champagne binge, actually. Uh, I was there with a friend of mine, and she remarked, it, we tasted two champagnes uh, side by side. Yes, two bottles, one night. It was great. And she remarked how she hadn't really, you know, she's a big fan of champagne, but she hadn't realized the real difference in quality. 
you know, she knew her sparkling wines from her champagnes, but when it came to the bottles coming from that region in France, it was really unclear about the, the difference in quality. And she saw a marked difference between the first champagne we tried and the second. And I thought, well, how great is that? And the fact that, you know, the first one we tried was actually the better value. Tasting different wines side by side, always a lot of fun. And on a more virtual note, you did a tasting with um, your friends from Chico and our dear friend Sophia, who lives in Leeds. And um, that seemed to be quite enlightening as well. It was a six-hour Zoom, Matthew. I never knew I could do it. I've spent a lot of time on Zooms, but six hours. Granted, this was not um, entirely dedicated to the wine tasting. Uh, Sophia Luckett, very good friend of ours. Uh, we work together at Hanging Ditch Wine Merchants in Manchester, and she now has her own business called The Drink Talkin'. And if you are interested in doing a group tasting, you must ring her. She is based in the UK, of course, but, you know, she's with all things virtual these days, um, she's able to do these classes across the globe, depending on, you know, time differences and the, and the like. But it was truly fantastic. And we covered Italian wine. So we had a Prosecco, uh, we had a Gavi, and then we had a Chianti. So she kind of took us through Italy, um, a great mini course, so to speak, with uh, some friends of mine who are not wine novices. They know wine, they buy it at the grocery store, uh, but they were all extremely enlightened, uh, just having that little bit of education, which was fun, because we were all with friends, drinking, and can't really beat that. Well, it sounded like the wine tasting was a lot of fun. And going back to your champagne comparison, that's the fun thing about wine education. You get to drink different styles of wine, different types of wine, different levels of quality of wine. And it's always a lot of fun to talk about that and talk about taste and why one wine might be better than another and talk about price as well. Yes, and it also calls out the need for wine educators, just like you, Matthew. Now, on with the news. Italy's major wine trade show, Vinitaly, was this week cancelled for the second year in succession, as Italy faced the prospect of a third lockdown. It will now take place in a year's time in April 2022. However, uh, an offshoot to the event, Opera Wine, is still scheduled to go ahead in June of this year, and October may see an event designed to kickstart the industry's recovery from COVID. This comes as no surprise to me, I don't know about you, Katie, but, I mean, what is the likelihood of events actually taking place in 2021? Some people seem quite optimistic, others like you a bit more pessimistic, one might say realistic, because everything is just so unpredictable now, and organised events must be extremely difficult, with the real possibility of them not even happening. Well, and I suppose my pessimism stems from this as an organizer of events. Uh, I know many people are chomping at the bit, uh, getting ready to host in-person events. But for my part, I feel like we have just now dialed in the virtual event space. It's getting better. There are better platforms out there. Uh, people are more comfortable on Zoom. They're there, there are less hiccups, you know, and I think there always will be uh, with the virtual space, uh, but people are maybe a little more accustomed to them. 
And I feel, you know, if you're going to spend a, a ton of time organizing event and you want to make it as impactful as possible, then you want to start out with the platform that you're going to eventually execute the event in because, you know, a lot of people I think want to plan these in-person events and then you're just doubling the work, having to plan for these in-person, then cancel and then backtrack and then plan for the virtual. But you were speaking to uh, some peers of yours in the UK and one of them seemed quite optimistic and the other less so. I mean, what were their observations about what's going to happen in 2021? I think it all boils down to the vaccine and the ability for governments to roll it out. And unfortunately, it's just very different in every country. So especially when you're trying to organize these international trade events, it's very difficult to assess what sort of attendance you will get uh, because some countries just aren't as efficient at rolling out the vaccine. We see the difference between the UK and the US. Uh, and then we were just reading an article and you seeing the the variances between, you know, various different countries. And so it's kind of a crapshoot, really. Yeah. And different go- governments have different policies. Um, neither of us has had a shot yet, um, though I know quite a few people who have had both shots, which is very encouraging. But we're, we keep on looking. So hopefully we have a possibility um, in the immediate future. But it's very exciting that people are getting it. In the meantime, virtual events all the way. On the last edition of the pod, we reported on the suspension of tariffs on Scotch whisky by the US for the next four months, as it was announced that exports of whisky fell by 63% in January 2021, so that suspension is really important. But the spin was that the suspension of the tariffs was a success by the UK uh, due to Brexit, but we should have perhaps looked further afield. The suspension now applies to all European drinks, meaning that wines and spirits from the EU The UK, the EU and the US are not subject to the 25% tariffs imposed by the Trump administration, at least until the 1st of June. This certainly does not mean the dispute is over. The steel industry in the US is still very much pro-tariff and the negotiations are in truce mode rather than finalised. So Katie, I have found in talking with distributors and importers that um, wine coming into the country is quite difficult right now because wineries are reluctant to export, they're waiting for whether tariffs are in place or not in place, and worryingly for rosé lovers, a lot of the rosé isn't going to come in until mid-May, which is kind of when people really want to get into their rosé, and so it's difficult for these all these distributors and importers to really organise their um, structure. Well, I think all of our listeners will know that it's been a back and forth, tit for tat. We've not had a lot of clarity about what this exactly entails uh, for the drinks business. But though I was pessimistic about the events uh, going in person, I am optimistic about these tariffs actually uh, being suspended and it's just a shame that we have to wait till the 1st of June to be sure of all of that, uh, because as you say, you know, major categories are going to suffer, such as rosé. But luckily, there's a big campaign about rosé all day, rosé all year, and that it's not a seasonal beverage. So maybe that will really kick in this year. Yes, I've had quite a few conversations with um, distributors about rosé and how it doesn't have to be the latest vintage. There's some really good stuff that might be one or two years old, but for the consumer, they generally want the latest vintage. But maybe this will change people's opinions when they ch- when they try 2019 rosé and they're like, oh, this is actually still pretty good. 
Also, it's quite beneficial in the short term for California because all the 2020s are coming out right now. And so there, um, all those rosé addicts are kind of seizing on the California rosés. And then they'll have the European rosés come May and June. Just in time for the summer months. England has ambitious plans to reopen by mid-April. But that may be too late for the hospitality industry, as it's estimated that 2,000 pubs have closed over the last year. Furthermore, the forced closure of pubs on St. Patrick's Day alone is estimated to have cost the industry £54 million. However, there is an ongoing boom in craft breweries showing there is still an appetite, albeit a changing one, for beer, wine, and spirits. Meanwhile, in Scotland, where there has been a more conservative attitude towards reopening, hospitality bodies urge to follow England's reopening pattern. Currently, in Scotland, alcohol cannot be served and premises must be closed by 6 p.m. The plan for reopening in Scotland would only allow alcohol to be served with meals, while in England, a fuller reopening is the ambition. The industry said 60,000 jobs could be saved with a £1.2 billion impact on the economy if Scotland followed England's plans. I'm really glad I'm not in Scotland right now. It's just getting warmer, so it's probably beautiful. I'm sure it's beautiful. But the idea that restaurants and pubs and bars can be open but cannot serve alcohol completely defies the point of those businesses only being allowed to serve alcohol with meals. That's something that's happened here in California as well. It's very frustrating because I don't really see the point of it. But here in California, things are reopening. We're at 25% indoor capacity in Sonoma and in Napa. And I was just talking to someone today. Sacramento is going to follow suit next week. So things are reopening. And I think the plan statewide is to accelerate that reopening and really get businesses up and running again. Yes, and all of that is really encouraging and exciting, and I think it's just about making sure that we don't do too much too quickly. Um, We definitely want to keep restaurants open. We want to keep the hospitality business, well, not keep them, but kickstart them back into a new phase of recovery. But as I said, I think that will be gradual. We can't uh, jump in too fast too soon. AB InBev and the Patagonia Clothes Company have reached an agreement over the use of the Patagonia name, and the case will now not go to court. Patagonia, which had released a beer in 2016 under a different name, had sued AB InBev after they released a beer called Patagonia in 2018, made by Quilmes, the Argentinian brewery. Patagonia also accused AB InBev of capitalising on the name by promoting the brand at ski resorts where Patagonia clothing is very popular. The financial financial details of the settlement have not been disclosed, but it would seem that AB and Bev had concluded that the chances in a lawsuit were slim. What's in a name, Katie? Does this mean anything to consumers? Or is this just two really big corporate brands fighting over how to make as much money as possible? Well, I do confess I have a Patagonia vest and I have a Patagonia jacket, so I'm a culprit in making it a global brand. 
Yes, those two items of clothing are, are pretty essential to their business model. It is true. And you do go skiing. So what would you think if you went to um, a ski resort and saw Patagonia beer? Would you associate with the clothes brand or just with the region? I would probably just dismiss it outright and go for a Sierra Nevada. And now, Katie, for our wine of the week, which is... Altos Las Hormigas Clásico Malbec 2018. Well, for once, a fairly easy wine for you to pronounce, which I'm sure you appreciate. And this came from a mini Malbec tasting we had. Fantastic mini Malbec tasting. Which kind of reminded us that Malbec from Mendoza can be extremely good and extremely approachable and have complexity and structure rather than kind of the mass market Malbec, which can be very fruity and high alcohol and a bit blousy. And this is a producer that really emphasizes the the terroir of Malbec. Yes, and funny story here. So you actually lost these samples for a little while. Um, I believe you found them in the closet just recently. Uh, But I had had a tasting with our friend, Elaine Chacon-Brown, and we had a tasting, Elaine and I, um, with Pedro Parra, virtually, and one of the wines was an Altos Las Hormigas wine because Pedro Parra uh, consults with them, with the, the viticulture. And so... So you found these wines in the closet. So I immediately called Elaine because I thought we had to do another tasting because now we had uh, both the Classico Melbeck, which we are going to talk about in a little more detail now, and then also one of the kind of upper tier wines of this brand. And it's very interesting to try the two side by side. Similar style, you could see that as a producer character to the two wines. What Altos Los Amigas are doing is really emphasizing the terroir of uh, Mendoza, which was something that initially, when Mendoza became internationally famous, producers weren't really bothered about it. It's more about Malbec and that black fruit, spicy style of wine. But producers like Altos Los Amigas are all about place, where the vines are planted, where the vineyards are, higher altitude, concentrating on the Uco Valley to make a more restrained refined style with really fine tannins rather than the big bulky wines Mendoza has been um, known for. And these were two good examples of an entry-level wine, which is the Classico, and then the higher-end wine. Guatarari, and that one is um, an Appalachian-specific wine, and they have different ones, uh, Lujan de Cujo and uh, a few others. And for our uh, non-Spanish speakers, Altos Las Hormigas is actually heights, altos, and then Las Hormigas is ants. So you actually have little ant caricatures on the bottle. The labels are really, really nicely done. Yeah, kind of a Art Deco, Art Nouveau style. And this was actually, when we visited Mendoza, we stumbled upon a really good restaurant. We were kind of confused about where to eat, and we just found this restaurant which is open. We were hungry, sat down, and we ordered this wine. And it was a perfect introduction to Mendoza. Yeah, and so for a little bit of history, uh, it was created in 1995 by prominent Italian winemakers. And they brought on uh, Pedro Parra, who's Chilean, uh, to help uh, consult with, you know, finding limestone in Mendoza and in Argentina. And they were successful. And that's where these wines come from. They, they have found these really exceptional sites. Uh, and it's also a focus on cooler sites and really that expression of terroir. 
Yeah, one should never underestimate the Italian influence on Argentina, not just its wine, but its culture. If you watch Argentina play football, about five or six of the team will um, have Italian surnames. So very important influence. And what's really great about this wine is it's only $15. And for $15, it really, really packs a punch. I think I'd happily pay $25 for this wine. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening. That's another two weeks in wine wrapped up for you in the news. And we'll be here in your feed next Wednesday. So please join us. And as ever, we appreciate you listening and all your feedback that you give us. And I hope you enjoy all the news that we share and do so while drinking some Malbec. There's some really good stuff out there. And we're here to share all the great wines as well as the great news. So cheerio. Mm -hmm.